Welcome to the Bare Naked ABCs, where we review the genius of the Bare Naked Ladies song by song. Sometimes while we're lying in bed, sometimes while I'm playing in the sandbox with my kids, at times their songs make us sad, like last week, but sometimes I feel like I'm floating until I can't see the ground. I am Tracy, and tonight I am joined by... Aaron. Bobby. <laughs> That's right. Tonight I'm going to oh my goodness. vibrations because we are joined by Bobby. Return right. of the Bobby. Remember me? Probably not because you all started listening after I left the show, which I don't blame you for. <laughs> I'm just saying. That one dude, he's re- he was like, man, Bobby's gone. I'll listen now. And he's going to tune into this one and be like, oh, damn it. <laughs> Let's throw in some extra sophomoric humor just for him. Kenneth is back. (laughs) But Bobby couldn't join us in the studio because his father took his T-board away. So, hey, are are you in your room? Me? Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm in my room. I'm in my room. I'm in my sandbox. I am. (laughs) I'm only... And yes, you could expect a lot of puns tonight. I plan on throwing as many Beach Boys songs out there as I can possibly throw out. Moo. It's going to be fun, fun, fun. (laughs) God only knows how many I'll get in. God only knows how you'll work surfing USA into conversation. That's going to be a reach. I know. That, that's going to be a reach. Barbara Ann might be even harder. Are you kidding? Barbara Ann is, speaking of someone who makes me harder, Barbara Ann is, uh, she, uh, what? Is that lights real, babe? <laughs> oh, God. I'm not going to start in on this uh, lights business again. Hell yeah. Got to think. She's got to put a restraining on your feet. At least then I'd get her autograph. (laughs) But I'm bummed. Anyway. (laughs) So tonight we're reviewing Brian Wilson. Lying in bed, just like Brian Wilson did. Lying in bed, just like Brian Wilson did. Brian Wilson from the Gordon album, but it was also on a million and one other things that we'll go on about in a few minutes. It's true. Uh, It was written by Stephen Page. Um, My guess is pretty much solo because he wrote it on his 20th birthday in his his parents' basement, by the way. Oh, was it in his parents' basement? All right, we'll we'll correct that. Well, yeah, that's where his bedroom... Neckbeards unite. That's where his bedroom was. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But he was 20 years old, <laughs> 20 years old, and he wrote this song. We'll get into that in a minute, but I think that actually I'm going to make a connection to that and mental illness and productivity. But anyway, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to go on about what I was doing when I was 20 years old. Mm-hmm. It wasn't writing anything like this. I wrote songs when I was 20, but none as good as this. No, I think this one is a... Uh, well, we'll get into it later on. I'm sorry. I don't want to jump the gun here, but... <laughs> I don't even think the Beatles were writing songs like this when they were 20. They wrote stuff like this much later, but not... They were, were still playing My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean at that point. Hmm. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. This is a, an extremely famous song. Might be their epitomous song, if, if nothing else. This is their second most played song ever by the band. It's been played, according to setlist.fm, 
742 times by the band. I believe it. I think they have more versions on record than any other song, too, don't they? Of this song. There's at least five, according to Page. This, well, it was five, according to Page. In the liner notes of disc one. When, yeah. I think that was in 2000. Um, it's much more by now. Um, and we'll go over how many versions in a minute, because I'm going to go down through them. This, this song peaked at number 68 on the Billboard charts in 1998 when it was released as a single here in the United States and was on the chart for 20 weeks. That's true. But it peaked at number 18 on the Canadian Singles Chart when it was first released back with Gordon. And their first time that I have it written down that they played it in public was June 15th, 1991 at the Horseshoe Tavern, which is one of those taverns that has a lot of B&L history to it. Uh, we do have a, a copy of that, which I'll put up on the website. It may have been played before this point because it was on Bare Naked Recess. I bet he played it for his girlfriend. <laughs> I'm just saying. Pretty good odds. And probably, you know, some friends and stuff. Just saying. Well, I think Radiohead's first show, they said there were like five people there and mostly friends and family. I think that's the, that's the case with most bands, the first show. It's true. Stephen Page has played this with himself or with the Trans-Canadian Highwaymen 56 times. Nice. Um, Brian Wilson himself. Wait, he played it with himself? <laughs> he cloned himself. <laughs> he, he played it with himself? He did. He, he hung cords like over his body and literally played himself crazy. like a bass. <laughs> but no, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. You were about to it's talk like about Brian Wilson's Charlie Kaufman film over here. So Brian Wilson actually has covered it in concert 65 times. Yeah. And Carbon Leaf has covered it once in concert. What a quirky name for a band. And recently, when BNL did their concert series through the U.S. Uh, with KT Tungstall, they played it every single night of the tour, and it's extremely powerful. If you haven't had a chance to see one of the performances, I'm going to post a copy of it. Um, but it was an extremely powerful performance. It doesn't cover and and overdo Steven's performance, but it's amazing to hear KT and her harmonies mixing with Ed and the con and the audience kind of joining in. It's a very emotionally powerful type of song that way. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I still, I mean, this is one of the ones where I think it's almost kind of a sacrilege for B&L to play it without Steven, to be honest. But I'm just saying. I also feel I I agree with you, Bobby. I feel that way with B and L playing it. It does seem very personal. It does. I also almost feel that way, and I hate to say this, but I feel that way with Steven playing it too, because each of the band members adds so much into the background. I almost feel like hearing this song without without Jim and Andy and and uh, Kevin and, and Tyler and Ed playing in the background is a completely different song. It's like hearing Pink Floyd play Dark Side of the Moon after well, sure. Roger Waters left. You know, when he plays it, it's like, ah. Yeah. When they play it, it's like, ah. When he, you know, when Roger Waters plays The Wall, that's fine. When uh, Pink Floyd sands Roger Waters plays, I don't know, The Division Bell, that's fine. But there's something missing when they play the older stuff. Matter of <laughs> fact, I would dare to say we have yet to hear the ultimate version of this. Which would be all six members playing this. So you have you have Andy on the congas as well as Jim on the keys. And Brian Wilson also playing in a piano in a sandbox. <laughs> oh, that would be all seven, yes. That would be I would pay amazing. very good money 
to see that I show. That would be rock and roll heaven right there. <laughs> I don't know. I want to jump back just one second and say, here's the thing. To piggyback a little bit on what Aaron made the comment that it feels like such a personal song. And really in true, I mean, if we're going to dive right into it, I mean, Stephen, as we said, he wrote it. He's 20, his parents' house. And really, I mean, the song, at its crux, is a, is obviously, it's an appreciation of Brian Wilson, obviously, but it's an unflinching appreciation, recognizing his mental illness. And really, the narrator is saying he shares this sort of feeling that he believed Brian Wilson to have had. And so, I mean, that does feel like a, a song from a very personal place. So in a sense, I could deal with, like, if, Stephen Page was by himself, like in a YouTube video, just he and an acoustic guitar singing the song. I feel better about that than the idea of B&L singing it without him, to be honest with you. I, I agree. Because I do think this... I would agree. I do think this feels like a very personal song. To me, this to me is a B&L song that I know of people who are not fans of Bare Naked Ladies still really like this song. It's, in a way, quintessentially a Bare Naked Lady song, but in another way, it is so vastly different than some of their first big singles. I'm not saying it's vastly different mm -hmm. from a lot of their great songs, but I'm talking the first big singles and stuff. I mean, this is, this is a different song altogether in many ways because of the fact, I think what I appreciate so much about it in one regard is that it's, as I said, like an appreciation for Brian Wilson it is a song about mental illness, but it, I, mm -hmm. at least in my opinion, it's a whimsical song in a sense, but it doesn't make light of no. or romanticize <clears throat> mental illness, which I appreciate because so many songs do, I think. I don't believe this song is romanticizing Brian Wilson's mental illness or anything no. like that, and I don't think it's making light of it. I think it's, it's sort of like acknowledging it it's sympathizing. Well, yeah, yeah, and it's... I mean, when it comes down to it, it's sympathizing with his mental illness. It's also sympathizing with his his mental blocks when it comes to creativity and, and how he would get stuck um, and do as much as he could to try to get himself out of those blocks of creativity. Including putting a sandbox under his piano to kind of get mm -hmm. a feeling of the beach... As he was writing, which, of course, is what right. that line refers yeah. to. It's, it's the whole idea. There was a big mythology around the idea of a sandbox, and he claims now, of course, Mr. Wilson says he did have a sandbox, but it wasn't the extent of an entire room um, or anything <laughs> like that, as people like to sort of mythologize about. No, it was um, in his living room, and it had a piano in the middle of it because he right. was trying to get the feel of the, the beach, feel of which the beach. inspired him. Right, right. And he couldn't exactly bring his piano out onto the beach, so he brought the beach to the piano. Of course not. Yeah, it's actually not as crazy as an idea as it might sound to, to people at first. Oh, I don't think so at no. all. No. Yeah. But then I'm sort of crazy. It's kind of a, gr so. yeah, it's kind of a great idea. The beginning of this song is Stephen Page's inspiration, you know, compared to the inspiration that Brian Wilson used to get with the sandbox, 
Stephen Page's inspiration was going down to the record shop and and kind of getting inspiration from the people around him by listening to the music that was there. Um, mm. He would go down to Sam the Man Music Shop that was in Toronto. It was a late night record shop. They used to keep the, the record shop open very, very late. And that was where he would travel to when he was having breaks with inspiration. Very famous um, record shop, by the way. And that's also the record shop that made them famous because that's the record shop that sold their yellow tape at the very beginning and really built up their fan base. Right. I'd like to visit there. Speaking of Brian Wilson's inspiration and his mental illness, the other thing he used to kind of get through his mental illness was Dr. Landy. Well, he was... (sighs) Okay, that's a big story. And if the listeners yes. are interested, I'll let you take the lead. Well, no, I'm just saying, <laughs> as a mental health professional, I'm gonna be no, no, you're the. I'm gonna be careful with what I say. You're the expert, but like, no, I mean, first off, if anyone is really interested, there's a great film called Love and Mercy. Um, yeah. About yes. this subject, Steven, no, not Stephen. John Cusack. It, well, John Cusack and Paul Dano <laughs> both play Brian Wilson. Paul Dano, the younger; John Cusack, the older. Paul Giamatti right. plays the uh, Landy who developed this kind of therapy which was pretty much all about controlling the minutia of his patient's everyday life. He wanted to create a 24-hour therapy. I actually have a (laughs) quote here from him, if you will indulge me. Here's a quote from a fellow named Michael Goldberg in uh, Rolling Stone, 1988. He was saying, During the course of eight days spent with Landy and Wilson, it became clear just how much control Landy exerts over Brian's life. With the exception of taking a brief drive by himself to the market to pick up groceries, Brian appeared to be incapable of making a move without Landy's okay. During one interview session, the Landy line seemed to ring every 30 minutes, yet Brian appears to be a willing participant in the program. And that's part of the problem. As we know, Landy, of course became <laughs> became uh his legal guardian became his like co-songwriter business manager like everything and it wasn't until 1992 when there was a restraining order put on him that he finally stopped contacting Wilson um this guy was crazy and his idea of the therapy was called like 24 hour therapy okay we're basically the sad thing is he is a quack, but he's also just like this a nasty, nasty person. I'm sorry, I hate to make such kind of judgments, but he literally exerted this control over every aspect of Wilson's life. Uh, it was, he gave therapists and, co- and psychotherapists a bad name. Well, yeah. he would, people- would you guys say that Eugene Landy is to Brian Wilson as Colonel Parker was to Elvis? I would say worse. Uh, I would worse. say worse. worse. Worse, yeah, probably. Considering the amount of control he exerted over his personal life, not just his career, I would agree. Be- right. Because the other piece of that is that Colonel, Cur- I, I get, I always get it. Colonel Parker was supposed to at least do that to some extent, and there's not a therapist-client yeah <laughs> relationship that right. is going on there where there is a level of trust. That yeah, there was a lot of I would on. say financial and emotional abuse in that relationship. Well, th- there was definitely that, and the fact that he kept coming back. Landy actually finally wound up 
voluntarily, you know, or at least agreeing to having his license suspended in California, but then still went back and was practicing like in Hawaii, I think, and stuff yes. like that. And it's um, it's just it's crazy to me. It's sad to take someone any any mental health I, professional that doesn't recognize the dual relationship clause of the ACA and the APA and and the ACSW and such needs to relearn their mental health codes. Well, I mean, that's I don't think he cared about him. I don't think he cared. He wanted to be an entertainer before he ever got into the psychiatric field. Yeah, this is his weird way of like breaking right. he was a leech really, I think. He was a parasite. He was a terrible person. He insisted on helping to write the albums on producing the albums right. on controlling the albums themselves on being listed as co-writer on albums <laughs> he saw this this wonderfully talented person a very vulnerable talented person yes and i don't want to read into what his possible mindset was and what he was attempting to do but what he did do was he saw this person who was an extremely talented person and he hitched along for the ride and started taking the reins and controlling it and putting his name on everything. Mm. When it comes down to it, he had no creativity with, when it comes down to, to any of that, it was Brian Wilson. And if anything, it was holding Brian Wilson back. He should have been <clears throat> developing and helping him to heal from his depression. Right. And that should have been his only thing that he was doing. Right. No, it all started with a panic attack, you know, pretty much. And uh, then it's like he, it was decades of not being able to be free from this guy's influence. You know, it's its very sad. And he was charging him like $400,000 a year, and that's like 1980s money. Yeah. yeah. No, Incredible. It was a terrible, terrible thing. I think <laughs> it's safe to say that he was worse than just a pedagogue. Um, <laughs> he was... Uh, oh, easily. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of other P words that I would prescribe <laughs> yeah. for the good doctor and pedagogue is not one of them no no and i may have to edit out some of my thoughts on that because i want to be professional <laughs> when it comes to this but this man sickens me as well he should it really does what he did to this this vulnerable person really really sickens me you know i think that's the appropriate response and because <laughs> of like his struggle, like Wilson's struggle with obesity and everything, he even started taking the control over, like, literally what Brian Wilson would put into his mouth. Like, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. it's shocking, the level of control he had over this guy. It's shocking. That's a good way to empower your client. Right, right. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Bad up coming out. <laughs> he had absolutely no interest in empowering his client. This was never about healing him. It was about exploiting him. I'm oh, sorry, yeah. but... I, I won't go that far to say, but I'm glad you well, said Well, I feel safe. <laughs> I feel safe to say because this guy... I, I don't know. His motives seem awfully clear to to me. That's for sure. Um, we pled guilty to like uh, an abuse charge and lost his license. I think that says it all. Sure. Yes. Sure. Yep. <clears throat> He's not a nice man. But anyway, it is funny. It is funny. <laughs> Safe that, to say. So let's get off Mr. Landy because he's one line in this song. The only line that is the only line that is devoted to him is that one line, of course. The, you know, I hope you're not some kind of pedagogue, right? Something like that. 
Tell me you're not just and, a pedagogue. Right, you're not just a pedagogue because right now I'm lying in bed just like Brian Wilson did. Um, it's interesting in the music <laughs> video to see the depiction of the therapy sessions in the music video, which I think are actually sort of dark and uh, crazy. <laughs> I mean, the video, of course, goes on to have the imagery of like plants and, and, and bonsais and stuff like that. But I mean, we've even got like some shock therapy and stuff going on in the video. Which, by the way, I searched yep. everywhere, could not find the director of the video, but... No, there's not much about the video. Come back, let's but, get back to the video in a little bit, though. Let's stick to, sure, to sure. the lyrics for a little bit. Alrighty. Um, just to kind of give it a little bit of, of focus. Um, Wait, there's focus now? I leave the show and you guys, like, put a <laughs> focus on it? What? There's focus now. <laughs> There are a lot of lines in here that we're making. Um, uh, help me out, guys. Beach Boy references uh, that uh, we're trying to allude to reference to different <laughs> things in in both Brian Wilson's life as well as other as other psychotherapy type sure. stuff. So, so um, we talked about Doctor Landy. There was also Smiley Smile. Right. Um, Smile was the big. Beach Boys album, big Brian Wilson album that was never right. released. Um, but then they well, eventually it was well, yeah, a yeah. long yeah. time. Um, yeah, it was in like two thousand something. Yeah, and it's still not quite what it would have <laughs> been, but it's what they tried to then well make it into what it would have been. Yeah, if um, if Smile had been released when it should have been, I think it would have really just torn. The music world, uh, oh. a new a hole. Yeah. <laughs> like, because Smiley Smile, yeah, which was the truncated version. Yeah, of that, Smiley Smile was, was still good, right? But like, I can only imagine. It wasn't pet sounds, it been, but it was right up there. Right. Not much is pet sounds, and I'm saying that in terms of albums. Period. Like, if you're talking pop rock albums. No, it's up there. Oh. It's up there. Well, Espe- yeah, yeah, especially pop rock. It's it's got to be like in, I don't know, top. You can't mention the history. Top twenty. You, top twenty. If you're doing all time, if you're doing in that period well, of time, no, I it's, mean, oh, it's it, top, I top ten or top five. Like, yeah, the great influential <clears throat> pop rock albums without mentioning Pet Sounds. You just can't. But, um, no, I, I would agree. That's anyway, definitely in the conversation. Um, back to the references. I'm sure you're also going to mention the Pavlov's <laughs> dog reference, of course. This is this a BNL podcast? Of course. Go ahead, Bobby. I'll well, let you no, take I mean, that. You guys, I think probably most of our listeners are aware of like the Pavlov, you know, Pavlov's experiment with the ringing bell and the food, you know feeding time to the point where they yeah, would hear the dogs them. would salivate because they associated exactly. the bell right, with food. Right. Yeah. Right. And I like how he's mixing that with the line that's ran around it, which is going down to the record shop in order to inspire his rest, his his inspiration and his right. creativity. Matter of conditioning, um, right? So, so right. So he's doing classic conditioning with with the record shop and the listening to the music in order to inspire his own creativity and comparing it to classic conditioning of Pavlov's dogs, which is a really that is a totally meta type of thing like holy cow like talk about brainiac type level in a song well especially like well it also comes back to what we, we mentioned the the sandbox you know like i think similar to the record shop and and steve you know the sandbox to brian associating that with the beach and then trying to get in that same creative headspace right. where he can't go out um very similar trying you know i think <clears throat> We're all creative types here, uh, we in different fields perhaps, but 
I think we've all had to deal with, you know, writer's block or something akin to that sure. in a creative mm-hmm. sense. And uh, it's you can't force it, you know, but at the same time, you can try and do things that are sort of peripheral that, that you hope will put you in the right, right mood or headspace. So I, I think anyone who's been creative can relate to this. Well, and some for someone 20 years old well, to realize but this. here's the thing. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Yeah, it's well, some I, insight. Well, here's the thing, too. It's like... So, as we know, Brian Wilson's often called a genius, right? I, I'm not coming up with that. Uh, you read any, you read any bio about him, they're going to talk about him being a genius in his field. No, rightly so. Here's the deal. So, I mean, this song, of course, is about the appreciation of both a genius, but also confronting the idea of the mental illness. Here's the thing, you know, for a 20-year-old to write this song. Now, obviously, as Paige has mentioned, as anyone would mention. Uh, Brian Wilson's a huge influence, obviously a god in his field and all of that. So let's, uh, one of the points I was going to make earlier that I feel this is a good time to kind of wrap around to is Brian Wilson, and you'll see this in the movie Love and Mercy if you ever watch it, which again is a dramatization, but it's a good dramatization. But it's the idea, some of his most productive, creative brilliant work was done as a young man and that is actually a recurring theme a lot with geniuses before they burn and fizzle out now now i mean obviously Paige is still producing but i would argue then this is me this is my opinion but i think it's a a, a valid arguable one that this song that he wrote at the age of 20 in his parents basement when he was probably feeling depressed really relating to brian wilson this is one of his best songs that he's written i think and he was t- I no, I completely old. agree. Now, I'm not saying that his songwriting mm-hmm. has gone to crap or anything like that, <clears> but <throat> I don't know. I mean, this is a high-level songwriting at such a young age. You know, it's well. The interesting thing also is is the the technicality and the craft, as you say, versus the emotional sure. input. And um, I think he's probably oh, yeah. grown as a musician and and learned a lot, but. You can't go back to that same place. And this is the reason I, I, for instance, I, as you guys know, very big fan sure. of angsty music. Uh, when I was when I was in high school and college, especially, you know. <clears throat> but I recall Nine Inch Nails, for instance. Uh, after a while, there were some albums. He's doing new work now, I think, or he's touring again, which is great. I'd love to go see him. Love Trent Reznor, great, great songwriter. But I also feel like after a while, I think a lot of people, especially people who are, are channel, using music or whatever artistic medium to channel negative emotions, once they get to a good place, uh, there's really nothing well, to sure, complain sure. about <laughs> anymore. And I'm being facetious here and I'm oversimplifying, but I do think that the best music, uh, specifically, is made uh, by people who have, you know, maybe emotions that they want to process in a in a healthy sure. or positive way. So they channel it right. into something right. creative, <clears throat> and I think that that process is what makes something resonate so strongly. Yeah, and I think that mm-hmm. that's true of like writers. And, I think that's the- true of artists. I think. I mean, the last thing I want to do is romanticize the idea of depression and say, oh, in order to be a great artist, you have to be depressed. Blah blah blah. I mean, I right. I, I, that's the danger. Right, I don't want to promote I don't that idea. I necessarily agree with that. Um, however, however, what you said I think is true. I think art can be such a valuable tool to process negativity, to process depression. Now, obviously, some people, like Brian Wilson himself, reached a point where he was so depressed, he just laid in bed and wasn't creating. 
And so that's right. obviously not good. <laughs> right. Right. But, um, you know, a song like this, and again, I think there is something to be said about a prodigious talent when you're young. And I think Stephen Page probably was. I'm not going to say, you know, what I think he was probably somewhat a prodigy uh, in terms of his music stuff. You know, I think he's probably better at it than most 20 year olds mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, but it was this combination probably of this deep fear of failure. I mean, here he was living in his parents' basement, you know, and stuff like that. He probably wasn't feeling all that successful turning 20, you know, like when is my life going to start? And he writes this, you know, this really great song. It's And I would argue that this is a great song. Um, I, I truly would. And I don't mm-hmm. say that easily, by the way. I, I don't say that... Uh, lightly as anyone who remembers how i used to rate stuff (laughs) will will remember uh so (laughs) i do think there's no that's i do think there's an interesting connection in the fact that he was using his appreciation not to mention slightly the mythology around brian wilson and his mental illness in a way of saying this is where i'm at you know trying to connect through mm-hmm. this great artist it's sort of like almost an apprenticeship right in one song you know like the younger artist looking up to the older artist whereas not wanting to make the same mistakes at the same time you know right it's very interesting well and i feel like he's worried about about that like you get this in this first album this fear this overriding fear with the songs of petering out, of of being a one-hit wonder. So you, you have Brian Wilson, which is this Box song said. about losing. Yes. So you have Brian Wilson, which is this song about 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 being kind of this person who loses his creativity and loses his inspiration right. and might not be able to get it back. A couple songs later, you have you have New Kid on the Block, which is once again a song a song about this group of people, this boys group who is known just for this one little thing, and they're not not recognized for their creativity and their inspiration, and then they kind of drowned out and become nothing. And then you have following up with that, you have Box Set, which is this I can do all this other stuff, but no one wants to recognize. So you have this fear of right. failure. And loss of vitality and loss of creativity that kind of overhinges throughout this song. I mean, throughout this album. Right. I agree. It's amazing to kind of listen to this album as a whole because there are patterns and themes throughout this uh, throughout this album. Well, I think that's why Gordon really was a breakthrough album. You know, uh, there's something to be said about that. The fact that hey, you saw it the same as me at the Juno Awards. When people in that video package, as they were like presenting them, what was the album people kept mentioning is like a quintessential album of their youth. It wasn't disc one. <laughs> if they weren't mentioning Gordon, it, it was, was yellow tape. Yeah, it was mostly Gordon. There might have been a few yellow tape, but yeah, it was definitely mostly Gordon. Definitely. So let's switch over. Does anyone have anything else to kind of mention about the lyrics? Yes, I mean, just there's... one thing. And I think this is kind of sure. interesting. I mean, we talked about the like. We talked about the, you know, sandbox. We talked about the creative drought a bit. Smiley smile. Talked about that. Um, I just want to mention a quick couple of things from my standpoint. A, 
what I think, why this song I think is even liked by a lot of people who don't like a lot of their other big hit songs is there are some relatable ideas, of course, lying there staring at the ceiling tiles, stuff like that, blah, 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 blah. However, um, or even like the idea, you know, thinking about what to think about. I think we've all sort of had that feeling. But what gets me every uh, every single time, we've got that interlude, the dream interlude. Okay, you know, when he's talking about I had the dream that I was 300 pounds, though I was very heavy. I floated till I couldn't see the ground. And then he keeps going on. The somebody helped me. I couldn't see the ground. Somebody helped me. I couldn't see the ground. Somebody helped me. I couldn't see the ground. Now, at first, I mean, you might be thinking the idea, a lot of people associate the idea of floating almost as like this pleasant thing. But then the way that it describes... But he's well, that's the idea. Away. It's this feeling of disconnect right. that gets higher and higher. At first, it seems like, oh, okay, I wasn't, even though the 300 pounds, of course, referring to the you know obesity and everything that like Brian Wilson wound up struggling with, but um, this idea of just this disconnect, somebody help me, somebody help me, you know, um, well, and the anxiety, you can hear the anxiety building well, in right. him as he's losing touch with things. He's losing connection with the ground and with the it's, people. And, and it's right. the fizzy well, lifting drinks well, scene in Willy Wonka. It's like the music doesn't redeem it at the end. The music only increases in my, it, the, ah, in my, you know, in but, my thought. I was going to comment on that. But I'll, it, I'll talk about it later. But it's really interesting because then you have, he comes back to the beginning again. Yes, and yes, this precisely. Time, it's more positive, it's more uplifting, and we're back to what he finds inspiration in. It's We're back to him going down to the record or, shop. We're back to him, fi- I think, refining inspiration. Or we're back to the cycle. Or is it you can't exactly. escape? Yeah, exactly. I, I That's how I take it. I take yeah. it as... We're back at the beginning of the cycle. And honestly, that even that's not necessarily uh, well, no, a, a no. gloomy... Because I think what it is, it's it's saying, okay, I'm creative, I have a drought. I'm creative, I have a drought. I have mm-hmm. that. That's sort of the cycle, anyway. And right. to we the point of later with some of his later songs and every everything right. for everyone, and and we'll come back to it for with our me and and our men. Hmm. That there's there's a cycle with that. Well, to to the point of earlier talking about at the risk of I don't want to uh, glorify or romanticize depression, <clears throat> but I actually wrote a paper on this in college. Uh, I was talking about how uh, so-called manic depression or bipolar disorder, as long as you are like in a hypomanic state or something controllable, would actually lend itself very well to creative enterprises because you have that cycle of depression, then you break out of it and suddenly you're very creative and energetic and you can make something, then you go back to the depression, then you you have these cycles. So that's what I was thinking of when I came back to that first verse here. I agree. I mean, it's it's very Kafka in a sense, um, or any of those... Mm-hmm. Of any of those and, no, I could yeah. be wrong, but I believe that Stephen actually was diagnosed with with bipolar disorder. Um, I don't know whether he was bipolar one or bipolar two, which I talks think about the type level two. And how how I would guess. long it goes. But um, you know, as a, as a mental health professional, I don't want to make well, sure, a, a sure. guess in that direction. Yeah, I don't no, want to no, be an no, armchair either. therapist here. Uh, other, but uh, other people can do that. Me doing it's a little bit more serious. Uh, 
But yeah. but yes, I mean he he has been. If I remember correctly, type two bipolar seems bipolar. Um, seems accurate, which explains these area these times when he just feels completely uninspired and depressed, and then and then comes out of it and he just is on a. Can roll. I just say too? Uh, and I mean, I'm I'm jumping ahead. Well, I just want to say one last thing about the lyrics, and this is just the guy in me who likes a clever turn of phrase. And again, thinking of the fact that he's 20 years old. I love the turn of phrase that he has here. Uh, we talked about the sandbox, but wondering where the hell all the love is gone. I'm playing my guitar and building castles in the sun and singing fun, fun, fun. I love how he brings in the Beach Boys like <laughs> thing there. Fun, fun, fun. Yeah. Because obviously this song is not about fun, fun, fun. But the fact is, is that, I mean, that that uh, line to me, I... I just think it's so damn clever, uh, so um, I don't know, just perfect for that for for that verse. No, for real, it's, it definitely it's is. something that I think says quite a bit without saying very much. But anyway, interestingly enough, and I think this has got to be the Brian Wilson influence. But all my favorite Beach Boys songs are the ones that are either like kind of sweetly melancholic, like God Only Knows. Or are, mm. have an almost sinister tinge to them, like mm. good vibrations. Oh yeah. Well, and I, <clears throat> one of my favorite Beach Boys songs, "In My Room," which is so melancholic, yeah. But at Not the sure. same time, sweetly poetic about this place that he finds comfort and relaxation well, no, yeah. in. I mean, here we have a person who loves loves being around people, but, but at the same time, I get the feeling that he's a major well, no, yeah. introvert. And well, in the oh, song, yeah. in, my room, if in My Room didn't exist, there'd be no In My Garage by Weezer, which is one of my favorite songs off the Blue Album. I, that's yes. what I was thinking like, when you said In My yeah, Room. Yeah. yeah, 100%. Which, by the way, Weezer is hugely, <clears throat> their Blue Album especially, I think, is very influenced by the Beach Boys. But, um, but Oh, yeah, I can hear that. But In My Room was the song that I listened to during my depressed times. I listened to over and over and over with and just would delve into and and disappear into in many ways um but it it, it provided solace because i myself was that way so no the same with me with in the garage though for yeah, weezer like, garage, i listened to that song sure. a lot like yeah this guy's a rock star he plays D. <laughs> yeah yeah and then you listen to pinkerton and think oh shit but anyway, oh yeah, I love Pink. Pinkerton's a great album. <laughs> but then you realize, man, life still sucks, even when you're a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get better. It just gets harder, and yeah. you get tireder. <laughs> we don't want to tell the kids so that. Tell us a little bit about the music here. Gladly Aaron. so, sir. All right. Um, so I am, by the way, using the version on Gordon here for reference, as it is my favorite. I like Brian Wilson 2000 a lot, especially due to the nice instrumentation. Anything with accordion in it has my attention. It is nice, However, but it I dis- some lyrics, doesn't it? Well, that, and I, I dislike that it launches right into the chorus and gets into the more rock part faster. I like the slow burn uh, on the Gordon version. And, you know, the very first time I heard this song, the kick into gear at the end of the first chorus caught me off guard, and I think it has a great emotional impact. And also, you know, I didn't—I'm just now realizing, but maybe 
has something to say about bipolar too because it goes from this kind of really slow and plodding kind of ballad song sounding into just boom okay oh, now think, we're into this like i think action-packed kind of, rock mm. with like the james bond riff well, so like, like what's going it's on like here that live performance <laughs> that 2007 live yeah. performance video where they're going acapella and then go bam yeah. into the yeah anyway it's yeah it's a really sudden but it works really well Sudden transition. While we're here, let's talk really quickly about the versions. There are nine different recorded versions of this song the by hell you say? Holy mackerel. I've probably only heard like five or six. So let of me them. go over them real quick, and I'm going to fly through these. So we have the one from Bare Naked Recess, mm. which was messed up because Bare Naked. No, Bare Naked Recess was right. There, there was no Tyler on this. We have Andy's Congas, which is kind of driving the song, um, but you can definitely hear a missing piece. Um, this is one of those songs that you can hear it slowly developing with each iteration until you hit Rock Spectac. Um, it's missing a little bit of the vitality, and Steven is still finding the notes that he later on hits so perfectly. Um, so you miss Steven and Tyler playing on the ending of that song. Um uh, then we have the yellow tape. This is Tyler's first version. Slightly slower start for Steven, but then it goes back to normal speed. Um, still a song in development. Uh, makes a huge jump to the sound that we know later on with the addition with Tyler. Then we have Gordon, which is the one that everyone, I think, kind of knows. Tyler and Jim are laying down a beautiful beat. Andy is supplanting it beautifully on the congas. Um, then we have <clears throat> disc one, which is the, just the rock spectacular version. Which is very nice, too. Then we have the rock spectac version. Yes. This is a live version from 1996. It's the So we have the Gordon version, which is the definitive version. The rock spectac is the other definitive version. This is the one that most people know because this is the one that was yeah, on the Yeah, they were playing the that most. a lot. Yeah. Um, everyone is singing with Steven in the background. Um, this is the one that... Um, if you like a steady beat, don't listen to this one because Tyler is definitely swinging the beat on this one. Um, he really belts that first line of the song of the last la of the last verse on this one. So this is the version where Steven is like screaming, "Drove downtown in the rain." This is where he's like screaming it. Um, Gordon he takes it lighter. Um, there's gorgeous harmonies on the last word, and Kevin is just killing on those keys. But we don't have Andy. Um, and then there's the 1998 version, as we mentioned before, which is actually called Brian Wilson 2000. Um, it's a shortened version of the song because they shortened it for radio play, but then because band management was worried they wouldn't play a five-minute song on the radio. Americans. But people actually wanted the longer <laughs> version and the live version, so they went back yeah. to that one. So this one doesn't get played that often. Um, and then there's the extended versions. Um which is on the extended versions CD, um, which is a live version in Columbus, Ohio. There's not a lot of difference, but there's more harmonies on the first line of lying in bed like Brian Wilson did, and they repeat it um, with no music in the background. It changes tempo a little bit. Um, the song sounds a little bit slower, just a smidge, um, but Kevin is on organ instead of congas, so um, he's mostly just playing it with the chords instead. Um, and there's not a lot of strong harmonies at the end of this one. Red Rocks version is minus Steve, because this is when they played out at Red Rocks after Steve's left. Um, I'm not really highly recommending this version. Um, there's the Bare Naked on a Stick version from the 2004 Bare Naked 
for the holidays concert in Toronto. Um, the harmonies, they did a lot. There's, this is like a mixture of the extended version and the rock spectacular version that I mentioned earlier. Um, so there, those are all the different versions <laughs> that are out there today. Wow. It's like gone with <sighs> the wind or something. So yeah, actually I do like, there's a lot to like about the, the 2000 version, but I do prefer the version on Gordon because of that, that sudden kick into the, the, uh, the end of the chorus where the drums come in and everything gets kind of mighty. Mm. Um, it almost, you know, it's funny because it comes at the end of the first chorus, right? Where he's saying lying in bed, just like Brian Wilson did. Uh, it's almost like the narrator is examining his own neurosis and it starts to trigger like an anxiety attack. And that's why it starts to get very like tense and, and mm. the energy kicks in. Right. Um, which, yeah, that's just my own reading of it. But anyways, uh, the Gordon version is right around 154 BPM. I tried with 155. It was getting out of sync too fast on the fast end. 153 was getting out of sync too fast on the slow end. 154 wasn't syncing up perfectly, but I think, again, that's because their early days, they didn't use click tracks or metronomes. They just sort of played it. But they played... We'll, we'll talk about more about that later on, that, that Tyler was forced on one of the albums to actually use a click track. By I the, hate click tracks. As, as a drummer, I, I had a, 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 a professor who I was in a jazz band with during my time at UMA, and he would just pull out a metronome, and I would, I would just... Ugh. It was the worst. Was he like anyways, the guy in Whiplash? Tyler thought of that man as a as a torch. It wasn't. I mean, I'm not, it wasn't like Whiplash. Okay, I didn't have J.K. Simmons throwing a chair at me or anything, but my tempo. it was definitely uh, it was definitely unpleasant. My tempo. You're rushing. Yeah, I mean, I, you. Tyler's a man who likes to swing the beat, I, and so like for him to be held to a click track is just torture. Well, the thing is, there there are within jazz uh, professors, at least in my experience. There are people who think that the drummer should control the beat, and there are people who think that the bass player should control the beat. Uh, and I guess if you ask a pianist, the, some people might think pianists should control the beat. But like, if you're looking at the rhythm section, uh, a lot of people, like uh, well, as a drummer, I'm like the drummer should control the beat. You know, ideally, really everyone finds a groove and you're communicating and you're looking at each other, and that's what these guys certainly did. But I think Tyler, like me, might like for a little, uh, you know, you can intentionally rush your drag for emotional impact, and I think he right. does that. Um, but it does stick around. That's a really long-winded way of me for me to say uh, it sticks around 154 BPM, except the very end where there's an obvious accelerando. Um, it's in the key of B flat major. The chord progression is mostly B flat F C or one five two, which when I play it, I very strongly want to play the four chord, which would make it the uh, semisonic closing time progression. It's not quite that, uh, but it's very similar. <laughs> But then, interestingly enough, it kind of zigs when you think it's going to zag, and at the end of the chorus, it goes into playing like vamping on a G, and then you hear like the James Bond progression, which is like the, you know the fifth uh, sharp fifth or minor six up to the sixth, back down to the minor sixth and the fifth. So you get that da 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 da, very enigmatic, mm -hmm. very uh, interesting kind of pacing back and forth. <clears throat> so the form of the song is thus: it starts off right off the bat with verse one. Into verse 2, it's sort of a double verse. Into the chorus, into verse 3, into the chorus. Then we have what I'm going to call the first bridge, mm -hmm. which is our C. Mm -hmm. And then the chorus. And then bridge 2, which is our D. Uh, then the chorus. And then verse 4, as we stated, is actually a repeat of verse 1, symbolizing that there is no escape from this state of mind, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> my read on it. And then the outro, so that would be A. And the outro is vamping on that G chord with the James Bond pacing, so... It's kind of the same as the end of the chorus, but it's a kind of a distinct section. So we can call it E for fun. 
So the form is going to be A A B A B C B D B A E, which is somewhat indicative of early era BNL's sense of musical experimentation. In particular, I suspect that of Stephen Page. Uh, I love the, I love well, the, the song. <laughs> in the interview that you shared behind the vinyl, Jeez. Bobby, hmm. Stephen Page actually talks like this is one of the few songs out there that ends with a bass solo. No, it does. Like whatever. <laughs> What other song do you know of that ends with a bass Not solo? Not a ton. It's it's interesting though. Like I find in the behind the vinyl, this is one of the comments on the video, and I sort of found it interesting. Someone commented on that video. I wish he would have talked about what inspired him to write the song and the process of writing it instead of talking about all the different recordings and you know things like that. Um, right. I, and that, of course. You don't, at least I couldn't find him personally talking too much about what inspired him to write the song or why he wrote it, which I find interesting. But anyway, but I did find that video still to be very informative. That's a ni- that's a neat series, actually, the behind the vinyl series. Yeah. But cool. Anyway. Sorry, we interrupted your, your breakdown. No, my breakdown was finished. That was about it. You know, my breakdown um, was never finished. <laughs> I, I will say this <clears throat> from a personal standpoint i do really love this song and um as i've stated several times on the show i i am the one who knows the least about bare naked ladies uh, on this podcast i i still i've heard now plenty of songs between the a's and the b's that we've done and the ones that i've heard prior but i've heard only a handful of songs prior to doing this podcast and um when tracy asked me if I wanted to do a Bare Naked Ladies podcast with him, this was the song that I was thinking of that kind of convinced me, yeah, I want to do that. Because I had heard, obviously, uh, if I had a million dollars and one week and stuff like that, you know, and those are very fine songs. They're great. But Brian Wilson was one that he had played for me, and I think we did like karaoke once or twice. Right. Uh, and I, I, I just, it, it really caught my attention, and it really kind of illustrated to me that there was more going on with this band than one might get from a service level impression of just the hits or whatnot. No, I agree. Uh, so I agree. It, it really drew me to to do this, and I'm really glad that he had played that for me previously because it, it really helped my decision to do this. Well, I think this song is one of those perfect songs that shows all of the highlights of this yeah. band. I mean, you, this is a perfect song for the band's harmonies. Like you, throughout this song, you hear the harmonies, but even on that last line of this song. That is like the most beautiful harmony I've ever heard. And then more than anything else, this is the perfect song to point out the Cregan's work. So the playing on the congas is just gorgeous. Um, I I, like it. It supplants Tyler like they blend almost perfectly between the two of them. So you almost can't tell like where Tyler ends and where Andy begins. Um, and then you got Jim over there plucking on the bass like like it's on fire. Like, holy cow. Like, he is just going away on that double bass. Um, and this is definitively, like, what makes BNL for me. Like, this is the essentials of that band along with all the other things. Uh, I think that if Jim left the band, it would never sound the same again. Mm. I, the same way that it doesn't sound the same with Steven gone, I think that if Jim just had suddenly left, they would not be able to replace Jim... And, and and fill that spot. Um, he is one of the best bassists that I've ever heard, and that's that surpasses Paul McCartney. What? Um, this, 
Yeah, I, I hate to say it because I love Paul McCartney, but I think that he plays a better du- double bass than Paul McCartney does. No, I think um, he's good. Definitely. Um, definitely. But... And, and the sound of a double bass in music. I mean, there's obviously bass guitar all over the place. How many bands do you know out there that actually play a double bass on stage? I mean, you have you have like Ben Folds 5, but how many other bands do you know of that play a double bass on stage? Mm, that's a good question. So, Primus and uh, we did my my band the second child did we had we had second yeah. child did um, not many though not many I really enjoy um, there are some bands that I know that play either the you know upright bass or double bass and they play like maybe an electroacoustic um, <clears throat> I know Primus played with a played one with a bow but they like had a distorted uh, sound like they ran it through a distortion pedal and stuff so. I always like. <clears throat> the, I mean, it's hard to tell sometimes when you just hear it could be a fretless bass or it could be an upright or an acoustic. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I really like. And that's that's you can hear the jazz influence there in this in this song. You can certainly hear it in box set. So a lot of stuff in Gordon. The band kind of has is almost. I mean, it's not really a fusion album. But I would say they were probably influenced by progressive rock bands and fusion bands, stuff like Yes and Weather Report and um, <clears throat> and other bands like I mean Rush. <laughs> yes doesn't get enough Excuse me. credit. I'm a little sick. I don't think Yes is awesome. I don't think Yes gets enough credit for their content. They are they are really, really, really good. They are. But yeah, I mean um, there's there's like a lot of progressive rock slash art rock slash fusion slash jazz influence that you can hear. In their music, which is maybe one reason I like it so much. I really like uh, I like uh, music that has like multiple genre influences, <clears throat> and um, you know, especially the more experimental stuff. But it has to have a, a listenable core. You know, it has to have you know, like for me, I don't want to get too far off of the beaten path here. But uh, I've always said I'm a fan of like um, surrealism or you know, like abstract expressionists in in painting. I really like the surrealist the best. I think that mm. <laughs> you guys can't see this, but Tracy and Bobby are having like an eyebrow slash uh, hair conversation right now. It's really interesting. <laughs> but anyways, <clears throat> uh, I lo- so like if you take something, someone like take a take a painter that's really known for doing extremely lifelike still lifes, you know, right. that almost look like photographs. I can appreciate the skill and the talent that goes into making that. But it's never going to be as interesting to me as something like a Salvador Dali or like a, a Van Gogh. Sure. Um, <clears throat> you could take the opposite end of the spectrum. I really enjoy Jackson Pollock. I like abstract expressionism. But I also don't enjoy it as much as like Salvador Dali or Van Gogh. And sure. I think the reason is <clears throat> there's something recognizable in Van Gogh and Salvador Dali and uh, Picasso. There's something recognizable there. Right. Uh, but it's from a different perspective you haven't seen it from before. If you get too far out to where it's all completely abstract, right. then it's harder to have an emotional connection to it. Not that you well, can't, but it's harder. And if it's too lifelike or realistic, it's like almost what's the point right. for me? It's like I want to see it from a different perspective. Well, it's interesting you say that because yeah. you know who I think of when you say something like that? I think of David Lynch. I, I I associate it in. Film. Oh yeah, like 100%. Blue Velvet's I love probably Lynch. my favorite, but something like Inland Empire, though I can appreciate it. Oh it's man, so far out there. Yeah, it's, like so, it's harder to have that emotional connection right, to it. Right, but anyway, right. Not to get <laughs> except for being like kind of weirded out and, and creeped out. Oh no, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, 
But anyway. So to get, just because this is going to be a long episode, especially with us focusing, even even pulling us on focus. <laughs> um, do we have anything more about the music? I have one more thing. I think I'm, there, I've, I've said my piece. Anything? I love this song. Me too. So the other thing I want to point out is I love at the end of this song when it gets to the uh, bass solo, I love how it makes it sound like the song is winding down. And then all of a sudden it goes into overdrive, almost like a manic experience. Yeah. Um, there you go. So I I just love that piece. Well, and so. that's what I sort of meant earlier when I said that the music doesn't redeem the anxiety at the end. It it, it keeps it up. But um, Right. Yeah, no, I, but, I agree. So do we want to talk really briefly about the uh, can videos? I just, so there were can two I videos. one thing about oh, the official Warner Brothers video? Well, actually, which well, one was that's that? Of course, Stephen with the goatee. <laughs> it's the one that has Is that the one that takes place in okay, the one that so was filmed video. in hell. Right, the first video that was filmed in the <laughs> hell. Uh, just to mention, because those of you who might be interested, because I already started talking about it—the psychiatrist stuff, shock treatment, blah blah blah, all of that. Yes, Stephen with the goatee. So yeah, that alone, it's like what? No, uh, but um. Of course, there's the woman in white dream interlude, blah, 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 blah. But um, just for those who might be curious, at 4 minutes and 28 seconds, if you look very closely, he drops the bass. <laughs> it slips out of his hands. And, oh, and they, and he they, oh, he really? literally <laughs> dropped the bass, is what you're saying. They cut really quickly. Long before the days of Skrillex, he dropped the I bass. Saw this, I saw this in one, of the U- in one of the YouTube comments. So I go to 428, and sure enough, they cut very quickly, but the bass slips out of his hands, and he almost drops it. <laughs> He's like, oh, God. Oh, my goodness. I have to but go anyway. back and watch that Oh, now. and by the way, at the very end... So, it looks like they're in a heavenly place now by the end. And Stephen... Yes, yeah, true. I tried to pause it. Yes. All I could read of the t-shirt, there was something underneath it, but it says change of heart, which I can't... I yeah. can't be accidental. But anyway. So, other than this like feeling of redemption, of growth, of healing, that kind of is the feeling of this song, of going from hell to heaven kind of, kind of feel... Does anyone get this video? This is way too abstract for oh, me. Oh, really? Like I get. I thought the, it was pretty I, in your face. I get the dogs. I get the electroconvulsive stuff. Sure. But what is with the dead fish in the? Oh, well, I, I actually, yeah, I was wondering. Watering. That was going to be my question: is watering the fishes? <laughs> I think my my <clears throat> here's my take, and let's see if Bobby agrees or, or disagrees. My take is. It reminds me of a little joke by Stephen Wright who said, I like to torture my plants when I water them. I water them with ice cubes. So I'm thinking (laughs) fish fish need water to breathe. And if you're a fish and you're in a barrel, as it were, or a bucket bucket or a pail, uh, if someone comes along and just drizzles you with water it might be just enough to keep you alive and i feel like right so maybe like that feeling when you're severely depressed just surviving seems like a feat just getting up and taking a shower it feels like you know getting dressed feels like such a a huge accomplishment because you're just so not wanting to do anything uh that was that was my take what do you think bobby i can see it no, I think that that's an interesting way of looking at it. Of course, I did immediately think of the old expression, you know, shooting fish in a barrel. 
you're a, an easy target. But what yeah. you're saying is absolutely true. Um, it's like they're getting just enough sustenance to keep from uh, suffocating. Um, mm-hmm. Just enough. Um, I also think, I mean, you can tie that in with Brian Wilson's story himself, like with his like uh, experience with Landy, if you want to. I don't know if that's the intention, but it is sort of that idea, too, that these fish, since they are trapped, um, they mm. are completely dependent on this well, person watering them. That's an interesting uh, point, too, because I remember watching part of that documentary we referred to, and one of uh, a lot of Brian Wilson's relatives had not very good things to say about Landy, but one of them at one point kind of turned and said, you know, on the other hand, if that had never happened, he might have died. Um, so even though I think in the long run, it was clearly an exploitative relationship. Oh, sure, sure. There, there, there might have been some truth to the fact that at least initially getting him off the drugs constantly and, and just getting him you know, kind of clean and, and, and more of a healthy lifestyle may have, in fact, saved his life. Uh, that's There's some truth to that. So it's interesting. Right. <clears throat> no, and I think... So my, my take from this video mm-hmm. is, for me, personally, it was too abstract. Well, maybe it's See, purgatory rather than hell, because you burn... I don't know that... Right. I don't know that I agree that it's abstract, though, necessarily. I mean, and again, I'm not trying to be... I'm not trying to be argumentative, but it seemed... I mean, narrative... Pretty on the nose. Narratively speaking, yeah, I mean, I feel it has a progression, certainly. I mean, I do think it has some dark images. Uh, the fish one being one of them. The tree imagery, of course, you know, with the bonsai and stuff, when it f- starts focusing more on that. I mean, obviously, a lot of people use tree imagery, especially when talking about mental health, it seems. Um, yeah. Um, Who, so, I mean, who's hugging? Straightforward. What's that? Who, who's hugging when they do the transition between hell or purgatory to well, no, heaven? That's, that's the interesting question. Yeah. That's the, that's that is an interesting question. I'm not a. It looks, it looks like an outline. If you've ever seen the pictures, it looks actually kind of like an outline of Brian Wilson and Landy. Well, no, that's what I thought. But what's what's strange though too is, and I don't know if this is related because it obviously isn't this person who's hugging the outline shows it but i just want to mention her of course during the dream uh interlude you know the song never explicitly talks about any woman in white or anything like that but all of a sudden we've got this angelic figure who i think is part of the transition into the into the uh heaven uh scenes and so forth um but yeah, no, I that is a good question about the hugging. I mean, it does seem like it might be the the psychiatrist and but I don't I don't narratively speaking, I don't see how that works, but but yeah. Yeah. The video just didn't work for me. It just it I don't like the only thing I did like about it was watching them at the end like really going hog wild on the instruments and just like Oh no. And I like that, seeing I like them that. stomp around and all that. But not only that, it was also a good, it was a good um, advertisement for lens crafters or something like, uh, <laughs> you know, rock stars with glasses. That's cool. But yeah, and you know, they seem to be having fun stomping around. However, I do have to sort of, I do have to sort of disagree a little bit and say, I think the video is actually interesting. I I, I like the dark elements of it. It almost now, it, it's lighter than say something like. Uh, 
Metallica's video for one, which has the intercutting film from like Johnny Got His Gun. But you do almost start to think of that a little bit, like with the shock treatment and stuff like that. Like it's pretty dark, albeit quick, but dark images, which you don't see a lot in a happy pop band's, you know, videos generally. So true, especially at that era. I I don't know. I I mean, I I sort of appreciated it. I I really did. I sort of appreciated it. But. So what about the other video, the Rock Spectac release? It's they they edited the audio, um, removing a chunk of the opening verse. Um, it definitely looks like the stunt maroon kind of era because of Steve's look, um, which he has very iconic looks throughout his his career. So you can kind of tell where he's at. This one kind of skips to the second half of the first verse for some reason. So it's not any of the four versions that I mentioned earlier, it was edited specifically for this video. So what did you think about the video? I don't know. I sort of preferred the, I sort of preferred the Warner Brothers one, to be honest. Yeah? No, I agree. Like, out of the two of them, I prefer the Warner Brothers one better. Um, There's a lot of stop motion, but it feels like, oh, we have this new technology, let's play with that. Well, right, right. Maybe the feel was supposed to be, like, getting frozen, coming alive, getting frozen, coming alive, but I didn't understand what they were... Other than, like, that kind of theme, I didn't understand what all these stop shots of people frozen in the laundromat were supposed to represent. Well, no, I mean, unless you're talking about this idea of kind of, like, I don't know, certain banalities and stuff like that, I guess, but, I mean, to me, I don't know. I mean, I agree with you. I I don't... I don't think it represents the song as well, in my opinion. But that's me. But it was kind of a very 90s video, too. Like, 90s videos did a lot of this stuff, like, let's play well, with sure. the technology and and let's make something out of the technology instead of out of the song. Right, right. And that's and kind I of, mean, like, the feel it had for me. <laughs> and I do think by that time, perhaps the song itself for the band, and again, this is, of course, speculation, but, the, I mean, as we have discussed, it's one of their most recorded songs. It's one of their most performed songs so perhaps they felt this is a time we can really just play with the video of it and not worry about like how well the video might represent the song in this incarnation but. um so i'm there are a million videos out there of different times that they've played this like talk to the hand which is the live video um of them playing in michigan the dvd the them playing it at Farm Aid and a million other ones. So I'm going to skip over all of those and kind of bring us to covers real quick. Uh, account on accounting on time here. This is the second week we've had a long, long episode. I know this is pretty long. We have three major covers that I want to make sure we cover here. Um, so the first one is Cornbread Red, who does a bluegrass feel of this song. So I like the bluegrass feel. I actually like this song, but if you're going to cover one of what I think is the greatest songs of all time. It's on the list, I think. It should be on the list of greatest songs of all time. You aren't going to be able to surpass it. You can do something completely different that sounds cool, but if yeah. you cover yesterday, that's, it's going to suffer that's in like, comparison. Every time somebody covers the Beatles or Nirvana, I'm like, you gotta make it your own. You gotta change it yeah. fundamentally enough, because otherwise any comparison is gonna yeah. gonna crumble and fall. You gotta so be is... alien ant farm doing. Yeah, no, that's uh, yes. that's we don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Cornbread Red does a really cool bluegrass version of this. I, I sent it to you guys. I don't know if you had time. Chris to Cornell to it. did a really good cover um, of Billie Jean, and I apologize for interrupting, but that was pretty decent. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very different. A little off topic. 
Um, so Cornbread Red's version is very bluegrass. It's kind of cool. It's neat. Um, and it's definitely an homage to the band. They, they're not trying to do... They did the whole album was B&L covers. So they know that they're not going to reach B&L level. They're just trying to have fun with B&L songs. Um, did and you did. talk to good... them? Did you say... No, I did not. Hey guys, they, I read the back tried... of their album and that's what it says. They said we're not trying to reach B&L levels? They're saying, no, that's that's my take. <laughs> it's like dream a dream. Very guys. self-effacing. Ah, dream a dream. Come on. Just... Uh, they say they are trying to reach that that type of feel of just having fun with the music, though. So Bluegrass is great. Um, and then there's the Brown Derbies that do an acapella version of the song. Uh, um, it, it's kind of gorgeous in its simplicity, I think. Um, it's very different. Um, it's just kind of this neat way of approaching the song. Um, and then finally, of course, we have Brian Wilson singing Brian Wilson. <laughs> um, he has done it live several times. He, there is the story, of course, the time when they were, when they were recording Maroon in the studio. Right. And it was being produced by Don was of was not was. <laughs> and he knew the Walk band, the of dinosaur. course. Dinosaur. <laughs> get up, get up. And uh, he brought Brian Wilson in, and Brian Wilson played them. Brian Wilson, um, and then they played "Tonight Is the Night I Fell Asleep at the Wheel." Um, so, and then of course he left, and and his take his thing that he said as he walked out the door was "Don't eat too much." <laughs> um, so, <laughs> and then as soon as he that's was surreal. gone, they were like, "Man, that sucked." Who's ordering Chinese? <laughs> And then they were like, can we sue the bastard? No. Um. <laughs> I will say, uh, so what were your Didn't takes? It. I know I sent you guys Brian Wilson's version. I, I liked it. I mean, it's 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 very short. Uh, I think it's brave that he did it, to be honest. Yeah. Not a lot of people would, like, confront that about themselves. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, if someone wrote a song about me and my mental illness, which, believe me, I've, I've got yeah. some. You know, I don't know that I'd be like, oh, I've got to cover this. You know? What I mean? So, I mean, that's kind of cool, you know? I don't yeah. Know. Um, I don't personally enjoy it, essentially. It was, like, it was okay. It, it's Brian Wilson being Brian Wilson, which is great. I just, it's not my preferred version I, I think of the song and i love i love the beach boys so don't take that the wrong way I, i'm most glad that it exists because i think that's is the reason they now start the song acapella oh no yeah definitely. and yeah, that is that such is a why. great little tweak why. to the song that i think makes that sudden transition uh, in the early part of the song even more uh noteworthy and uh, interesting so i like that but yeah, that is true <clears throat> by the way Brian Wilson released his solo album named Brian Wilson in Wait For It, 1988, the, the year BNL oh, was wow. formed. BNL was formed. And on that wonderful note, I'm going to bring us to ratings. Yes. So as anyone who hopefully everyone who has ever listened to this podcast knows, there were five Beach Boys. There were. So we... There were. So we are going to rate this on how many uh, Beach Boys do you give this I was going to say how many oh. hundred pounds. Oh, <laughs> I give it That's what I was thinking. <laughs> no, no, no. We'll go with how many Beach okay. Boys. All right. Slightly more positive. 
Um, and let me start with our with our sort of pseudo background guest, the, the person who's come back. Thank you very much for coming Golf back, Bobby. Golf Bobby. Bobby. Thank you for having me. We're very glad yeah, to have you back. Of course, back. as always, welcome back anytime. Bobby, how many Beach Boys do you give this song? Well, this is part of the reason why I wanted to come back for this song, because I know sometimes people said that I perhaps was harsh <laughs> at rating, and I know that that's true. <laughs> Here's the thing. This song for me, and I'll, I'll also say I wasn't a big B&L. I, I didn't have huge knowledge. I wasn't an encyclopedia about them in many ways, like Tracy and Michelle. Like, I think the band really meant a lot more to you guys because you were there from the beginning where I sort of stumbled upon them. Having said all of this, as I, as I mentioned, I know a lot of people who don't necessarily love the band but love this song, and with good reason. As I mentioned before, I think it showed prodigious talent of the young Mr. Page. <clears throat> and I do think when the, uh, the band brought their own, like, uh, uh, magic to it, too, of course. So without any further ado, I guess I should just say I'm giving it a five. My first five, uh, it is a, it's a big and five. And there was much rejoicing. Because, Yay. to be honest, it might be. <laughs> I mean, there are a couple others that are in the same sphere but this could in fact be my absolute favorite B&L song it really well could be um, but yeah mm. anyway five five beach boys Aaron I am not 100% sure that I like it better than alcohol but dang it I like it at least as much and therefore it also gets a perfect five beach boys from me so I, I we don't know at this point what Michelle is giving it, we'll we'll have that to edit. In Wouldn't the it be funny future? if she was like, "I never really cared for this one." I one, one Beach Boy. <laughs> I would edit her out. Wouldn't that just be bizarre? <laughs> That's no, a fun I mean, game. Would... A fun game to play, by the way, is take take a band name that is plural and singularize it. So it's the Beach Boys become the Beach Boy. Bare naked lady. <laughs> so sad. Bare naked lady. Yes. <laughs> and now it's much different. <laughs> Would Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young just become Crosby? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hall and Simon and Hall and. I don't know. <laughs> it's a country now. <laughs> Simone. <laughs> so I'll, I'll get to mine really quickly, <clears throat> really easily. Uh, no, no surprise here. This is quintessential BNL for me. This is probably on my list the best BNL song. Um, there, there may be others that tie with it, but this is on there. Um, if I had to list the top hundred songs ever written, this would be on my list it's immediately, without a thought. This <laughs> is a definitive five. So, no pressure on Michelle. But uh, <laughs> assuming she rates it higher than a 4.5, this will be our number one rated song for now. As it and if I'm she rates it a five, be. it will be the first and perhaps only uh, perfect five we ever handed down. So uh, very interesting. Ooh. I'm very curious to see uh, what she has to say about it. I think that she likes this song, so I'm, I'm pretty confident it's going to be a going to be our new number one. But we'll see. It will be. We we will announce that after our next recording where we have Michelle in there. Michelle's hot take. Hello, this is Michelle coming to you from away. I am not in the studio. I'm in lands far away, but I wanted to chime in on Brian Wilson. And I have to say again, 
I feel like anything that's from Rock Spectac is going to get high rankings for me because I love that album. It's so good. BNL Live is one of the best things ever, and I've seen them live a couple of times, both when Steven was still in the band, and they just get it. They're so good. Like, that's where they really shine, and this album um, shines. The, every song on here, and you just get an extra piece of awesomeness when you're listening to it. So, Brian Wilson is a great song, and I did hear an interview once with the band and Steven was talking about how, and I might be mixing this up a little bit, so this isn't verbatim, but basically he heard Brian Wilson doing a version of the song, Brian Wilson, and he said it was so meta, like it almost made his head explode. And I would love to see that. I've looked on YouTube and I can't, I haven't been able to find Brian Wilson doing a version of Brian Wilson, but I would love to see that. Um, what I love about this song is it's so like it, to me, it really represents what bare naked ladies to me sounds like, you know, the, the song, the music itself is so upbeat. And especially with this song, there's this driving force behind it and the harmonies are so good and everything is just tight as hell. Like Tyler on the drumming is so good. And, you know, the bass work and the guitar work, everything is really good on this song. And it's, you know, this fast-paced driving force. And yet there's this incredible sense of, like, longing. And that's what's really great. I That's why I love the Bare Naked Ladies is for that juxtaposition of... Um, on one hand, the music sounds one way, but if you really listen to the lyrics, there's also something else going on. And there's just this like sense of longing that it just pulls out of you, and it's so good. Um, this song especially is really fantastic. Um, I'm trying to think of any lyrics stand out. Well, just the whole... You know, they looking at the lyrics, they really get into it. You know, they mentioned Dr. Landy, who was the guy who you know, the, the psychotherapist who kind of took over Brian Wilson's life and, you know, there was all this controversy. And that's just like a throwaway line in the song. Like you just bear, like if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss it. But the lyrics go so deep um, and it's just damn catchy. You know what I mean? Like you could, you could just listen to the song and not pay attention to the lyrics and love it. And that would be valid. But then if you listen to the lyrics and take it on a whole nother level, it's like, damn, these guys are brilliant. It's so good. Um, and Steven's vocals are outstanding. I mean, I'm just going to say this. I miss him in the new Bare Naked Ladies, and I was really hoping after the um, reunion on the Juno Awards that something would be happening, but it seemed very clear that that was the end, and I'm okay with that. I get it. That's fine, but it would, it, they were really good together, the five of them, when they were together. It was so awesome, and Steven's vocals on top of all of that incredible musicianship is just fabulous. So my ratings for this song, I'm give, going to give it a 4.9. I'm not giving it a 5. I don't love this song as much as um, Break Your Heart, but I do love it. So 4.9 is my score. 
and um, I encourage you, if you've not listened to this on the Rock Spectac album, go out there and get it because it's the best. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a fabulous day. All right. Well, I'm going to be going away to the land of Mormons for a while, so I won't see you gents uh, for a couple of weeks, but I will try to send in my reports uh from the from the that field if wonderful. i can and I, I, I promise to at least <laughs> send us from yeah Wonderland. i promise to at the very least and by the way there's nothing uh negative in there i didn't i'm not saying that in a bad way or a good no. way it just simply is it's undeniably the, the land of the mormons hey south, <laughs> hey, south park says that, that they're, they're the correct ones if they're they, very nice they're people the everyone in in utah <laughs> that i have ever met has been super nice real really quickly i want to mention an appearance uh, we are getting up close to September 30th, so I want to make sure I mention appearance fact this week. Um, of course, I will be posting up there the appearance of the first time that they played on Much Music, inter, inter, uh, Intimate and Interactive. <laughs> um, so I'll put it up there. Um, I will also put up there Brian Wilson playing Brian Wilson. Yeah. But I want to mention, where was Steve in 1998? So Steven was part of a band... Fully dressed men. Called Scary Movie Breakfast. And so I want to talk a little bit this week about how Stephen fell to love Ed. In 1988, Ed and Stephen and Andy were attending the music camp in Scarborough. And Stephen had a band called Scary Movie Breakfast. And had made some recordings and passed the recordings around the school. Ed got the recording from a friend of his and loved the songs. So Ed was walking around the camp, singing some of the songs off this recording, and Steve heard Ed singing Steve's songs, the the Scary Music Breakfast songs. And he was so impressed that anyone would know the music, as well as impressed by Ed's ability to just naturally harmonize, that they started to actually just sing together and naturally harmonize singing together just hanging around. This also, by the way, was the summer that Ed met Andy, but... And later this summer, Ed joined the Backstreet Basement Blues Band, which was the Cregans band at that time, um, when they needed a drummer. So the kind of things were kind of starting to gel a little bit, as we can see, coming up to the next couple of crucial weeks that I'll be talking about on the next podcast. Awesome. Yeah, the beginning of this band, like, if you get a chance to go out and read the authorized biography of the band it is actually really interesting to hear how these how many chance interactions they had over that summer where they just started to kind of meet one another bit by bit and come together very much in the same way that the Beatles kind of like one would meet the other and then they'd split and then one would meet the other and they and they just kind of had these chance interactions before things started to gel very much the same way with this band it's really kind of cool how that happened plugs Bobby, do you? I would like to put out there. Bobby has written this oh, play, God, yes, uh, the reprogram reprogramming of Jeremy, an amazing play. Also, has been turned into a movie. It has. It has been at many film festivals. I reached out to the person that actually directed the film. They're not releasing it yet. <laughs> when it gets released, we will be putting it out there for people to be able to watch slash buy. It is a great, great play. One, um, yeah, one hundred percent. Want to support the. It actually just won another award today. I found out, which is cool. So that's nice. Awesome. What did it win? It won Best nice. LGBT Film at this um, online awesome, film man. festival. Wow. Hey, Bobby, by the way, 
If you ever have a film made out of <laughs> the girl I'm gonna marry, uh, I think the people demand that the original <laughs> cast return. <laughs> no, I, I shrug <laughs> happens, man. Shrug, shrug happens. happens. Actually, that would be a good short film. I have toyed with the idea of. I still toy with the idea of writing Miranda. Side of yeah, that would be interesting. I would love that. That's a really good. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. This is sort of an in joke for people that are listening <laughs> that are that are listening to the podcast but don't know. So Bobby wrote this play, The Girl I'm Gonna Marry, and uh, I directed the play. Bobby was in it as the lead, and Aaron was in it as the best friend in the in the show. Uh, like what, ten years ago? Now available for lawyer <laughs> publishing. <clears throat> yeah, no, yeah, yeah. It was. It's now a published play from Hoyer Publishing. Go out. Rent it. It's an amazing play. I love that play. Without all of the bad cursing. There are no F words in the published <laughs> there are version. Plenty in the other version. <laughs> oh, yeah. It would not be unfaithful to the play to like throw them back in there. <laughs> but we took it to the MEAC Festival and it did very well. Yes. So. I'm. I'm very proud so, yeah, of, yeah. of being a part of that play because it was an amazing play. Um, you my best friend. Aaron played my best friend. <laughs> and he actually contributed He contributed a line in improv that did wind up in the finished published play. It was like, uh, what was it? Some, something, uh, <laughs> nice work, a-hole, or something <laughs> that like that. Right. Or good job, a-hole. <laughs> I- when you like reached out to help me up after I've been knocked down, you like offer me your hand and say, "Nice going, a hole." And I actually put. Oh my! I didn't know that. Wow! I, uh, I have mixed yeah, feelings yeah. about this. <laughs> <laughs> that was no, seriously. That was like such a fun experience. Um, I was. Uh, I'm still to this day grateful to have uh, taken part in that. That was a lot of fun, man. But if that you get a fun. chance to go out there, if you have anything to do with plays for for high schools um, or plays for <laughs> For, for middle schools, please go out and check out Bobby's work. It is excellent work, and I'm not just saying that because he's my best friend. Um, I am saying that because I Duh. am uh-huh. in deeply and um, honestly affected by his work, um, especially those two plays. Yeah, you should definitely check it out. Just are amazing. Um, so please go out and check out all his work. Although I would, I would argue that the best work I did was when I was 20, and ever since then, I've been sort of lying in bed. I think we all can say that. But, um, no, kidding, kidding, <laughs> kidding. No. Uh, I appreciate that. No, I do. I genuinely appreciate that. So, thank Bobby, you. I keep on plugging Bobby, at it. thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, it's it been awesome been having like you back. Times. Um, thank you for having me. I do miss yes. Michelle, but tell her... Hi. <laughs> you know, it's it's felt just like old times to have you here. It's it's felt like home. Yeah, been... You could say that it's like coming home, like you're you're bringing us home. <laughs> Are you doing a thing? Uh, week, yeah, doing the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I would never have known. Because because next week we're gonna be talking about bring, bringing it home. Well, I will make sure to phone home and give you my thoughts. <laughs> Whether they are recorded in horrible audio or just written up and sent for you to read, I could. It would be fun to make you read things. It would be fun to make you like. You have to agree now that anything I write, you have to say. Oh shoot! <laughs> okay, I will make that promise. Whatever Do you it. write, agree. I will read. Agree. Now I don't promise to keep it in the after editing. Ah, <laughs> uh, you and your it. loopholes. 
Oh, Excellent. Thank you guys for, yeah. for being here tonight. No, hey, I man. Michelle could join us, but hopefully she'll be joining us next week. I love this song. Um, I love talking with you, you guys, know, talking music. It's great. You know what I just realized? What's that? We haven't had Michelle on since since Seder from "It's All Been Done" was here. That's true. Do you think he's? Do you think he's kidnapped her? Maybe. Dun, dun, dun. I'm going to have not. to reach out and find it. I'm going to have to go listen to their podcast and see if he's tied her up so that he'll be part she'll be part of their podcast now or something. Okay, we well, got to cut you got to cut this out. You got to cut <laughs> No, no, not that part. You got to cut what I'm about right to here. say. Okay. Cut this out. But you should totally tell her to be a guest on their podcast that now. That would be hilarious. Uh, that in. would be cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, anyways, hey. Uh, it's been my, an absolute pleasure talking to you both, uh, yes. and I do miss Michelle as well. But I'm sure she'll be back soon. Thanks Have a lot. Out in SLC. Oh yeah, I'll be listening to BNL and SLC. <laughs> Have a good one. Be careful. There's a road out there called Dead Man's Curve. You want to be careful of it. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Have a good night, gentlemen. See ya. Thanks. That was fun. Don't forget, no regrets, except maybe one. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.